Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm shaping the space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity navel-gazing and political pablum by giving voice to good, hard-working people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. Busy times here in Lazarland. Not bad busy, but busy busy, for sure. The academic calendar is relentless in March. There's only one bank holiday in sight, which is, I should say, one of about four billion reasons to celebrate International Women's Day tomorrow. You know, the demand for a day to celebrate and to commemorate women and to support their long overdue right to vote was launched by the American Socialist Party in 1909. That's right, the American Socialists. The very next year, Clara Zetkin and other prominent German socialists took up the cause. Now, both German and American socialists were, were indispensable to the fight for women's suffrage, which they both ultimately achieved within a couple years of each other. So, uh, yeah, and hell yeah, we're taking off work tomorrow to celebrate women and to seize the moment to carefully consider how much work remains to be done in Germany, in America, and around the world to achieve bona fide gender equality. Of course, celebrating women is my daily practice. I live with two of the great ones, one of whom turned 10 years old this week. That's right, y'all. I got one in double digits. You know, it's funny, uh, a couple of family friends sent some birthday wishes to my girl and warned me, right? They warned me to cherish these moments because in no time at all, she'll be a tween and then a teen and then she's going to be tired of me, they say. I don't know what they're talking about. Baby girl's been entirely tired of me for quite some time. <laughs> quite some time. Look, I don't blame her. Uh, living with me can't be easy. I should know. Yo, I struggle with living with me every single day. Oi, struggle's real. Struggle is real. Anyway, happy 10th to Madeline Rose Lazar. Love you, baby. Oh, and I should say, bearing in mind awesome women, big shout out to a new four living patron, Teresa Weber, Teresa Weber, Teresa, Teresa, not sure if she's supporting the podcast from Germany or the U.S. Teresa, Teresa, my apologies to both of you. Miss Weber, Frau Weber, she told me that she travels a lot. She depends a lot on podcasts to keep her sane and entertained on the road. She said she'd been listening to For a Living on and off for a while, but apparently the uh, season nine opener with the air traffic controller Zach Dobeck, don't know if you listened to that one. Great episode, hell of a season opener. That conversation with the air traffic controller was so compelling to her that she decided it was high time to show her support at patreon.com slash for living. And Teresa, Teresa, both of you, I am uh, deeply grateful for your contribution to this project. Really, thank you so much. Listen, y'all, this is a listener-supported podcast. 
I really can't do it without you. So if this podcast is valuable to you, please do pop over to patreon.com slash for a living. Not asking for much, just a little bit. Hoping that might add up to something. Again, that's patreon.com slash for a living. I link to it in the show notes. Oh, and speaking of podcast patrons, uh, happy birthday to podcast patron and two-time podcast guest, Bruce Field. Dr. Bruce just turned 70. Boy's five years into retirement, and uh, gotta tell you, gotta tell you, he seems to be wearing retirement rather well. Sad to say, not everyone does. But Captain Bruce figured it out. Happy birthday, Cap. All right. Women's Day, my kid's birthday, always a good day to thank a new patron and give a little birthday love to an old, (laughs) indeed a very old patron. Love you, Bruce. Also, always a good day to reconnect with a former student. And uh, today on the pod, I have the pleasure to do just that. Jonathan Trezolo is a watch salesman. Indeed, he sells some of the finest watches in the world at the Omega Boutique on the Kudam here in Berlin. Jonathan walks me through the red carpet affair from the moment he arrives at work to the buzz of a big sale to his passion for building friendships with clients. Now, a fair warning to my dear listeners, you might leave this conversation, as I did, pining for a timeless timepiece, if you need one. (laughs) I got a guy. Uh, Either way, you're going to thoroughly enjoy my conversation with this thoroughly enjoyable fella. So please, join me in conversation with Jonathan Trezolo. Jonathan Trezolo, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? I'm a luxury watch salesman who specializes in handcrafted timepieces that are assembled by specialists in the field. And I try to pass along that kind of special relationship between man and machine. I I think I'm a person who has the ability, has the, the privilege to be able to talk about something that's somewhat of a mix of art and utility. I'm definitely someone who, who thinks a lot about this type of thing. Uh, it means a lot to me. I like wearing them. I'm wearing one right now. But in the end, what I do is I make connections with people. The greatest part about my job is really just being able to hear all these different perspectives and being able to connect with people who I have no contact, no experience with what they do, but I try to understand them and try to get in their head. And hopefully we get to a mutually beneficial situation. Nice. Well, I'm looking forward to getting to understand you more. I'm really looking forward to hearing you talk about all of that stuff. But before I do, perhaps you can give me a little bit of bio. Like, I don't know Mm. a single luxury watch salesperson. You're the only one. It's unique to me. How'd you get on this path? We were in college, we being my, my wife, my current wife and me, and we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do with our lives. I was kind of dissatisfied with uh, the field I was in. I was in the social sciences. I just didn't feel like it was cutting it for me, but I loved aspects of my studies, the tutorials, the being able to interact with people, even being a devil's advocate. I'd argue some arguments just for the sake of arguing. 
I think perhaps that's that comes from that kind of tribal aspect that you and I both know. <laughs> um, but members of the tribe, members we are. of the tribe. <laughs> but uh, in the end, my kind of experience ever since my first watch, the Tissot at sixteen, just appreciating these kind of pieces, hearing people's interaction, it, it found kind of felt like my version of the the Masons Club, but like less pretentious <laughs> among guys. <laughs> There's a hidden truth uh, that needed to be revealed. From that point, I. Uh, I was actually on a point where I was going to become a gemologist. The only problem being is they don't really have that many gemologist programs here in Berlin. Okay. Unique to Eder Oberstein in Frankfurt on the west part of Germany, where a lot of the manufacturing is for that. So I was dedicated to come back to Berlin. And I started just looking for what is at least in the field. Apprenticeship system exists here in, in Germany compared to other parts of the world. I don't have to pay for it. Just jump right in, get work experience, get the uh, the education at the same time and i found this program called the uh kaufmann im einzelhandel apprenticeship so a uh, retail salesman uh, specializing in watch and jewelry through my former employer christ uh, which is a german-wide uh, brand that was my first contact being in the actual industry and that was uh important to say the least <laughs> yeah 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 so Jonathan, I'm hoping I might be able to get you to discuss your education. Our non-German listeners might not be familiar with the Ausbildung or apprenticeship program that you just referred to. And truth be told, you know, despite the fact that I work in education in Berlin, I am woefully ignorant of how all of this works and I'd love to learn more. So can you talk to me a bit about your Ausbildung, your apprenticeship program, like what was it like? How was it set up? How did it feel? Tell me everything. Yeah, the uh, the Ausbildung is a three-year uh, apprenticeship that uh, focuses on a professional aspect. So you're working part of the time and then also going to school simultaneously and throughout the week. The educational aspect is make sure that you have the certain uh, requirements, whether it's business related. So there'd be some um, aspects of Wirtschaftspolitik, so business uh, politics, ethics, workers' rights, and um, your specialist knowledge. Like I said, my, my apprenticeship is specializing in the watch and jewelry aspect of sales. There's also sales that is other fashion, clothing, different fields. It can also be in wholesale versus retail. The, the apprenticeship um, is a three-year-long program for this specialized retail salesman. There's also a apprenticeship called the Handelsfachwirt, which specializes in the business aspects, the actual science behind uh, how the business works. It's, it's essentially along the lines of business school, but that you still have a professional aspect. You're still having work experience. You're not just uh, in school for business and have no work experience whatsoever. This is really trying to put you in there. You've contact, you've had connections, you're able to move forward. So when you do your three-year Ausbildung, you have also the equivalent of three years work experience, which is extremely helpful so that I can talk with peers who've been five years in the industry and feel comfortable. When you're doing your Ausbildung, about how many hours are you in class on a given week? The Ausbildung courses are uh, divided into two days of the week. So you have a Tuesday and Thursday. Of course, every apprenticeship is a little different about how they do it. There's a, um, a school, a vocational school that you go to. 
the school that I went to at Schlesische Straße is the one that is uh, very specialized in sales. They have other schools that specialize in either pastry or gastronomy. You have other schools that are specialized in different aspects, whether it be wholesale or even uh, industrial applications for different things. There's apprenticeships for a variety of fields, not just salesmen. It's just salesmen. It happens to be one of the largest ones. With those days, the way they're divided, uh, you have a couple of different subjects that you have to go through. So you have Landfede. So these are obligatory classes that you're supposed to take to be able to have the uh, certification to be a qualified certified salesman. They also want to make sure that you have a uh, German background. So they do have an Einheitlich, a uniform uh, German course to make sure that your German and your writing is also at a certain level. These language courses help uh, not just migrants and refugees, but also people like me who are not mother tongue speakers of German. Um, writing letters is still always the bane of my existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of my, my, my weak points, uh, but something I've been working on a lot because I, obviously in German, it's less forgiving than in English when it comes to grammar. Yeah. <laughs> and also decidedly so, yeah. Sentence structure. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a little different where in English you can just kind of mumble around. You, know, you can kind of jumble and kind of get to your point while in German have your whole thought kind of figured out and then you speak. Yes. I'm not used to that. Yeah. <laughs> you and me both, sister. So you're in class Tuesday and Thursday and you're working Monday, Wednesday, Friday, sometimes on the weekends. Can you give me a sense of how many people were in your program? So there's a um, pretty intense fluctuation rate for the program. So usually the first year you have a lot of new applicants. So 25 people maybe in a class, okay. uh, a couple of different classes. Following that, after the first semester, there's maybe a good seven people, eight people that drop out just because it's not the right fit for them. Maybe they do a different apprenticeship. Maybe they find a job. They finally got that uh, university spot that they wanted to get. But generally speaking, around 20-ish and since you all have this shared interests and you're together on Tuesday and Thursday, does a sense of community and camaraderie develop among you all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny because my uh, my current coworker at my my company Omega, we actually known each other from the first day. In, no kidding. In the apprenticeship. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, yeah, we we were always the the nerds for watches and jewelry. We just talk about <laughs> everything. Oh, have you seen this new thing on? Instagram from Longines or from Brigade or Rolex, whatever. Yeah, it's 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 fun, especially when you can find a clique that's really quite interested. Also, the age gap. I was 21, 22 when I went in, and I was a little bit on the older end of the spectrum. There's a lot of people who were younger, so 16 to 18 was kind of the average going in, who were just trying to figure out what they wanted to do after passing the MSA, after that 10th year. Um, or right after 12th grade, um, if they didn't get their abitur. So you were 21 when you went in. And like you said, you had already studied at university and you were a very good student. There's a lot of things you could have done, but you found a particular interest in this specific thing, right? Like you knew what you wanted. You were deeply interested in luxury watches and jewelry. And I have to ask, how do you describe that interest and like what makes you so interested in luxury watches and jewelry? I think uh, what really hooked me is uh, this kind of mix of um, geology interest. So I kind of love the earth sciences to an extent and the history aspect. So, I mean, as, as you know, I was, I was always kind of a bit of a history nerd myself. The, the, the evolution of, of the field is something that's so, so gripping for me. 
the fact that we went from sundials to now watches that are mechanical, that are extremely accurate, maybe have a two second difference per day is incredible. Or even just the watch that is um, has 7 million beats per second. So that's the most accurate. You don't have to adjust it for thousands of years. This change is the, the, the part that really grips me. Then the natural evolution, the, the forward moving aspect of it. The other aspect, of course, is with diamonds and stones. There's a, a classification, a categorization that is also quite interesting to me. Perhaps it was just something that I, I picked up from childhood. I always put things into little boxes. I, was a, I, I organized the cars by blue, by big, by yeah, red. Yeah, yeah, it was the same uh, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just finding out the different uh, aspects and attributes of these uh, stones. I feel like this fascination with luxury timepieces or jewelry or, or fine uh, precious metals really was just a foot in the door for me to be able to really connect with people on a deeper level, whether it be about lifestyle, entertainment, appreciation for things that we both find as elegant, finer aspects of this world. Well, before we get too far in to the finer aspects of things, for my listeners who aren't watch aficionados, maybe you could tell me a little bit about Omega Watches. Omega seems to have a story, and I'm curious about what your version of the Omega story is. Actually, the, the story of Omega is really just a story of constant success. In 1880s, it was a small uh, watch manufacturer in Switzerland. They were uh, producing different watches, um, first pocket watches, and then they switched to, to watches for the wrist. At this point, the pioneer spirit really just kind of goes into overdrive, and they're creating watches that are designed to be waterproof that they can take into the water, into the Lake of Geneva. And it's entirely antiquated by modern standards. They have little cork bits that are wrapped to protect the glass and protect the actual movement from water coming inside. And this is one of the first watches that was waterproof. Of course, it's always contending who was the first one who had even <laughs> waterproof watches and who didn't, yeah, yeah. Uh, just like with the radio and every other aspect of that time period. But this kind of idea of always pushing the limit, Rolex and Omega were really quite neck and neck at that time period. But really when people think of Omega, they think of the Speedmaster. Think about the watch that brought them to move, Buzz Aldrin and all of the other guys on the Apollo 11 mission, even the previous missions before that, Apollo 8, uh, the Gemini missions, the Mercury missions. These guys were wearing watches that brought them in zero gravity, horrible conditions for other watches that would just destroy them. And NASA had to certify at one point these watches because these guys were taking these pieces in and they weren't certified and no one knew what would happen if it's in this, this environment no one had ever been to before. These watches are, are strapped to the outside of the spacesuit in zero gravity. And there's nothing between the man and the watch besides just this little suit. And knowing that it went through this, it went through another plane. It's not just in the deep sea, but are not just on the surface, but actually into space is, is a part of their, their history. And so Omega is very much capitalized on that aspect is the pioneer aspect, whether it's in the deep ocean, which recently another big head-to-head -head fight with watch companies is always trying to make sure that they are getting ahead of each other. And the new most wa uh, waterproof watch is 10,985 meters deep in the bottom of Mariana Trench, which of course is unfathomable for us. We, our bodies would be crushed at that, that depth and that pressure. Unfathomable indeed. Unfathomable, yeah. Nice. The there we go. <laughs> Two dads telling dad jokes accidentally. <laughs> Yeah, so the um, the Omega Spirit is very much connected with this kind of pioneer aspect, as well as marketing towards popular culture. So James Bond is the big one. 
it's either James Bond or the Speedmaster. So the the Seamaster is what James Bond wears in the movies. Okay. Since Pierce Brosnan, that was kind of what kickstarted this entire relationship. Before that, it's just whatever James Bond wants to wear is what he's wearing on the movie. Sean Connery would wear his little Rolex, or uh, Timothy Dalton would wear something else. Now this this uh, identity is that we're we're connecting with a character, no longer an actor. This uh, this character will be in our popular culture for a long time. I know I know everyone has a little bit of splitting opinion when it comes to the way the last James Bond movie ended, but the watch did its job. <laughs> the watch did its job. Yeah. Uh, I have to say I don't know if you noticed this, but you referred to Sean Connery's watch as a little Rolex. <laughs> uh, is there a profound and rich competition between Rolex and Omega? Yes, absolutely. So uh, Rolex really kind of got insanely popular in the 50s to 60s period. And that's where uh, a lot of this kind of uh, image and this longstanding impression of Rolex has lasted from. Omega was, of course, very obsessed with quality of watches in the 50s, 60s. They're always trying to push the, the next leaf. So whether it be more anti-magnetic or it's protected against magnetism, which is a big problem in the modern world, electromagnetic waves can influence mechanical movements, or the watch is more waterproof, it can go to 1,200 meters, which it's nothing by today's standards. The, this neck and neck was really great for both companies. Well, I said little Rolex, actually, because I was thinking <laughs> about the fact that Rolex is on average a little bit smaller. Okay. There's some exceptions. But yeah, generally it's... It's a certain industry standard to look at Rolex, um, whether you even have uh, counterfeit brands or even other legitimate brands, they look at Rolex for designs. That's You can see that quite a lot, actually, nowadays. You can see a watch and people think, oh, that Seamaster, that looks just like a knockoff uh, Rolex. Well, you know, then this is the part where the, the uh, knowledge, the information of the field comes in. Well, the reason why it looks so similar is because these are actually features all divers watches have to have it has nothing to do with whether we're trying to copy them or not there's certain aspects like the super low nova on the dial and on the uh, the hands that are meant to light up in darkness or whether it's supposed to be the uh, unidirectional uh, bezel which turns so that you can measure how much oxygen you have left in your tanks when you're diving because at 50 meters it's probably a good idea to know if you have a couple minutes left or you should be heading up now <laughs> yeah it seems like good information Hey, I'm uh, I'm checking out your watch. I don't know anything about watches. What watch are you wearing, and why do you wear that one? So this is actually I, I took painstaking process to choose this watch. <laughs> yeah, so everyone in our company is allowed to uh, choose a watch after passing their uh, probezeit, so their uh, probation. And um, my first thought, of course, I was wearing a Speedmaster for a long time, a Moon Watch. You know, if it's iconic, everyone knows it. The watch itself reminds me of my son. It's the watch that I wore with my son when he was born. I was measuring his little naps when he was a little tiny infant. He would only sleep for an hour or two hours, and I'd just be measuring it, seeing if we're on track. However, he's running around. He's gobbling on everything, drooling everywhere. I need a reliable watch that I can use everywhere, that I can take everywhere. I'm not worried about. I can dunk my hand in its bath. That's why I chose the Seamaster. Okay. The Seamaster is a waterproof watch. It's meant to be more reliable. It's more durable. Uh, it's meant for people who want to wear watches, but the elegance and the art aspect are important. But at the same time, you're not afraid to experience life with the watch. This watch is actually Seamaster 300. Uh, it's based off of a, a heritage design from 1957. So 57 were a phenomenal year for Omega. 
Speedmaster, Seamaster, Railmaster came out all at the same time. Okay. Speedmaster, of course, goes on uh, five years later to become the official uh, NASA watch worn on the uh, first man in space. Seamaster was the first utility watch that had a metal bracelet. It was designed to go into water. Railmaster is anti-magnetic. So nowadays for us, the anti-magnetic aspect is somewhat normalized. Yeah. For all of our watches, they're 15,000 Gauss. So that just means in the end that you can hold the watch in an MRT machine and it won't get damaged. It won't be altered by it. Really? Absolutely. Huh? Yeah, we actually had a uh, radiologist. It was important for him to have a watch that was 1.5 Tesla resistant because I guess he comes in contact with a lot of that. Yeah, I'd imagine so. So Jonathan, you, you mentioned your shop and I'm hoping you could maybe describe it. Like what is the Omega Boutique look like? Like what's the vibe? What's the aesthetic that you and your team are trying to achieve at the Omega Boutique on the Kudam in Berlin? The first impression that you have when walking into the store, we have a new store in Karivi inside the department store. Ground floor, surrounded by boutiques. On one side, you have other luxury watch brands, jewelry, high-end stuff. On the other side, you have just boutiques, Gucci, Versace, Prada, all of these really renowned brands. Omega, right in the middle of that. That's where we belong. You see the entire history. You see little pieces, Speedmaster collections spread out all over. You can see all of these watches up close and personal. These watches, of course, have a certain value to it. So we make sure that there's protective glass. It's it's full service. So if you want to take a look at something, don't feel afraid. You can try it on. I've had plenty of people who don't have no no hint that they want to buy anything. Please, I want to chit chat. Keep yeah. me going. Yeah. <laughs> That's even if it's the warm up, like in the morning. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. You have this quite nice layout. The boutique is extremely luxurious and, and the design they spent tons and tons of money just pouring into making it nice and modern. Uh, my answer would have been significantly different uh, if you had asked me a couple months ago because we were actually moving in the process of moving. The okay. old boutique was old, run down, ready to get rid of it. It was no longer the standard that we, we appreciate for ourselves. Yeah. And the new boutique is larger, more comfortable, more open. It feels more natural to have a conversation. There's multiple tables. You're, you're more than welcome to take a look, walk through, see if you like anything, uh, you have any questions. You're welcome to just try on a bunch of watches, sit down, we'll offer you a coffee, offer you a water. If it's late enough, maybe a champagne or not late enough, I'll offer you a champagne. <laughs> so this is meant to be very welcoming, warming, and the highest customer service standard. So we'll talk to you. We'll get back to you. We'll see how you're doing. It doesn't, you don't have to buy anything. We just want to make sure that we're, we're doing good. We can look through a magazine together. Oh, happy birthday. Here's something for your wife. Okay. A little anniversary gift. High-end customer service, lots of conversation, building relationships. And I want to get into the relationship building aspect of your work, but I'm a little caught up on the space itself. Mm. So Kareve is the hallmark of German luxury. And I went there last week with my kid just to get a feel for it and thinking about our conversation. And usually we just go straight to the top floor because the top floor of Kareve has all this luxury food and drink. And the only luxury I really allow myself is food and drink. But we kind of like anxiously ambled the first floor and 
the Omega Shop is literally a, a red carpet, red rope affair. And <laughs> as what I might describe as a thoroughly proletarian fella, I felt like I almost needed like a travel visa to enter into that space. Like it's a <laughs> conspicuously exclusive affair. And I guess I just wonder what it's like to work in a space like that. Yeah, I, I think the design of the space has actually become a lot more comfortable and inviting to a lot of people. Of course, 100%. As a customer myself, if I go to Caribe, sixth floor, I'll get some nice pastries, get some nice donuts. Yeah. The the bottom floor can be a little imposing. It is. Yeah, absolutely. In intimidating. <laughs> yeah. I really felt like I didn't belong. I kind of don't belong. But that's, that's the change, though, is that we're trying to make the space changes that beforehand our old space was very closed off there's a couple of doors you have to come through narrow little entryways now we wanted to open up so people feel comfortable walking in of course the security guard which you probably noticed also another little uh feeling of uh, imposition you feel like you're being watched but that's just because of what we're working with it's for our own safety of course and also yeah. for that of our customers but yeah the actual space red carpet gold accents little decorations um, at eye level all across the boutique. Yeah. The little reflective mirror up front near the register. Yeah, these things are just meant to feel inviting, open. It doesn't feel closed off. You can just walk through peruse. You don't feel committed to anything. It's meant to be more relaxed affair. We even had a couple of days where we were having uh, champagne. So just like on the, on the Fridays and the Saturdays, you might have come in the last couple of months and just noticed oh, they just keep offering champagne to anyone who walks by. Come on in, take a look around, drink a glass. Yeah. Is that so? I mean, I see what you're saying. The doors are wide open. It's glass. And there is something alluring about it. But I felt like it was almost a forbidden fruit thing for me. I dressed on that day like I dress on most days. Like the kind of guy who doesn't wear a 20,000 euro watch. Mm. You know, I feel like I don't belong there. And what you're saying is, you know, maybe you should feel like you belong there. Like we can have the conversation. You don't have to buy anything. I take a look at you. I think you're probably not going to buy anything anyway. We're okay. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that partially is unique to my team, unique to the company I work for. Ever since I've started, the, the company's not that large in Germany. So there's four boutiques, a small uh, upper management you really know everyone by first name basis. And it's always been quite clear we, we do on the do principe. So everyone is very informal, first names, how are you doing? Um, we don't do the Zietzen like other brands. It really is unique to us because when, even me as a customer, I'll go by the Rolex shops on my free days. I'll wear also same normal clothes as you, leather jacket, look a little beat up. And that is the feeling that you get by a lot of these stores is that for the most part, you're not welcome or that uh, it's quite exclusive that you don't really fit into this environment. What's unique about my company and I think this new perspective of selling. So this is quite a young team that I work with. Um, the oldest person is 42. You know, she's been in the, the industry for a while now. All of us are quite in the industry. We, we love our work. We read a lot about the work. We talk about it all the time, but it's really this idea of equality. So you have no idea what that person who 
Maybe he's just wearing little rags today. He's wearing sweatpants. He just threw on whatever he had at home because you don't know what his life is like at home. It's this respect. You talk to someone like a human being. And I think that's the big part of luxury that's so important. I feel like the older generation maybe has seen that before, but I think it's the newer generation that demands it. You have to respect one another, whether it's um, even an interaction where you just ask for a glass of water and know where the, the toilet is in the Kadife because it's a big labyrinth and there's construction every single day. Yeah, yeah. It's totally labyrinthine. I get lost in that place. It kind of drives me bananas. <laughs> and that's the design of it, right? It's almost mm-hmm. like Ikea where it's really taking you on a rather specific journey to some undisclosed location. And ultimately you spend all your money. <laughs> I have one kind of small question. It's just a curiosity question. I don't sure. even know how much it has to do with your work, but I just kind of wonder as like a former mall rat, like as a tween mall rat, which I'm not saying you're a mall rat incidentally, mm-hmm. but I was a mall rat for a while. Do you talk to the fine folks at Cartier and Yves Saint Laurent and Prada? Like, is there a dialogue going on between you and the other employees at the luxury brand first floor Cartier? Absolutely. It's actually a really small community. So whether we see uh, each other in the change rooms downstairs, in the, the canteen upstairs to grab a little lunch, or just like in the hallway, we're always kind of chit-chatting, giving each other's little gifts back and forth, little chocolates, whatever. This feeling of camaraderie also in the Cadivés, you never know if they're going to be coming to your company. There's been a lot of horizontal changes in the industry, whether they, yeah. they switch from fashion to watches or vice versa. Um, one of my colleagues used to be at Louis Vuitton and he switched to Omega. You never know who you're going to work with, so you don't try to make enemies. I mean, I don't even think that's in our lexicon, really. Yeah. And it's not in your constitution. It's just not the type of person you are anyway. But so there's a lot of discussion and dialogue between the people who work at the luxury shops in the Cadeve. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Again, having almost nothing to do with your work. There's a employee canteen yeah. at the Cadeve. Yeah. It's on the third floor. Really? Yeah. It's a hidden behind hidden walls. You can't find it. That's fascinating. And do they serve food that's like a cut above like everything else at a cadeve or is it like eh? the cantina is offering food for hundreds of cadeve workers whether they're in the pastry program gastronomy they're chefs they're at subis they're in fashion they're on boutique where the boutiques are not even quite cadeve workers we actually work for a company i work for swatch group that operates within the cadeve they rent a space so i actually don't belong to cadeve yeah, this, this cantina is, uh, it's, it's more affordable option on the Kudam. Yeah, yeah. Considering, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just everything is really pricey for tourists, generally speaking, or yeah, yeah. for Kudam people. All of it's reasonably priced. Yeah. Good quality. So just for our listeners, Kadeve is maybe something like Macy's was in its heyday. And the Kudam is the equivalent to Michigan Avenue or Fifth Avenue in New York. And you work in this unique space. And I'm fascinated by it. I wonder what it's like. I'm just getting like little glimpses of what it's like to work there. I always think about that. You know, we we talk with customers who say, ah, I've been a Berliner. I've lived here since the you know 60s or what have you. And so they've really seen the evolution of Kadeve. I think a lot of people also who've lived here for a long time have this impression that Kadeve used to be a little bit more egalitarian, a little bit more welcoming to the everyman. That has changed a lot. And I think that's just because of the industry. You've seen that also with the the watch industry. It's been moving more and more towards luxury. So more and more away every single generation, every single couple of years, 
away from the attainability of normal people, even me. I mean, this is a watch that I'm in possession of. I don't own it. I didn't pay 7,000 euros for it. But culturally, I mean, you notice that Berlin, even though it's a capital city, the German market is quite small compared to other places. If you go to London, the Omega boutiques, if you just look it up, I want to find an Omega boutique in London, Regent Street, King Street, all these places, there's so many boutiques, the market's massive there. Or you go to Dubai, UAE. So Berlin has luxury to it, but that's what's so important to our to our customers is that we have this connection. We want to make sure that people keep coming back, people are comfortable, people feel like they're taken care of, they're listened to. I have customers who I just talk with on my free time, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. And it's important to me because they're more than just customers at a point. It's actually developing friendships. Our kids hang out together. No kidding. Again, I really want to get into this relationship building thing, but I, I have this small question. Like, I wonder what you do when you show up at the Omega Boutique in the Kadeve on a work day. Like, you walk into the store, you smell the virtual cornucopia of perfumes, the lighting hits you, and then what? Besides the at least couple of minutes of spending time adjusting my hair and make sure it looks good before I jump <laughs> on the floor. Um, yeah, absolutely. So the the first aspect, of course, make sure just everything looks top. I'm actually quite a perfectionist, sometimes to my detriment. The workspace for the watchmaker area has to be clean. Tools are where they need to be because people are coming in with these timepieces that are over anywhere from 6 to 40K. They don't want to see screwdrivers all over the place. You, you spent a certain professionalism, and that starts with just impressions. It's all about first impressions in the luxury game. So someone comes in, they feel like they can trust you. So first appearances, the Schaufenster, the display window looks good. The uh, watches are all in the appropriate time. We make sure that they're all uniform. So 10.08 is where the hands always have to be. So it looks like a smile. It's, it's more optically pleasing. Yeah. 10, 8, and then it's always on 8 for the date because it's the infinity symbol. Ah. Is the idea behind it. I like it. Yeah. I like it. You show up at work dressed to the T or you show up in your regulars and get dressed in a a changing station? Um, Depends on the time of year, to be totally honest. I I mean, like, you know, I live a little bit outside the city because uh, just because you work in luxury doesn't mean you are luxury. And I think some people in the industry should remember that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Word. <laughs> uh, on summer days, I'm biking. I'm biking that full hour. We're going 20 kilometers to Cuddy V. Okay. Um, that way, of course, I need to I need to change at work. Otherwise, I'm wearing the suit on the way. Okay. Whether it's on the U1 or taking the S3, I'm not scared of wearing a suit at nine o'clock at Warschauerstrasse. I'm ready to go. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So whether you're dressed for work or you have to get dressed for work, mm. you show up. And you have to make sure that the floor is immaculate, right? Yeah. You have to make First sure. First thing. Yep. First thing, it needs to look good. It's spotless because this is the big part. Berlin compared to other places. So we have Hamburg, Frankfurt, Munich. Those are the boutique stores. That's where Omega as a uh, manufacturer has stores that are directly from the company, sold by the company to the customer. Berlin, you can have anyone show up. You have celebrities all the time. I've had big name celebrities, German celebrities stop by and we're just talking with them and we're just looking at each other, like just doing side eye. And it's like, do you know who that is? Like, 
Yeah, like that's that's serious. Or you have CEOs, corporate people from Switzerland who just stop in Berlin because it's some important junction they have to do. You never know who's going to be there. We had Hayek who came through. He's the uh, CEO of the Swatch Group, the entire group itself, which owns multiple different brands. So Blancpain, Briguet, Hamilton, Certina, all of them. And Omega is a pretty important part. It's it's the most important part besides the flagship, Swatch itself. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, it always has to be a certain standard. You really never know who's going to be there. Okay. So everything's looking immaculate. You step back. You see that everything's in perfect order. Mm. Then what? At that point, making sure all of my, my customer orders are up to date, check my emails, make sure if there's any requests. This guy wants a watch that hasn't been produced in two years. He helped me out. Someone comes in, has a watch that needs to be serviced. They don't know what's wrong with it. It's a watch that was given to them by their grandpa or their dad, who unfortunately passed away. I mean, of course, watches are such a familial aspect, whether it's the father passing the watch on to his son. It's these these special moments. This, this father feels like he's trusting. He's passing this trust to his son. At that point, it's so heavy on me how important this is to that person, whether the watch is gold-plated or not, whether it's a quartz movement. It's, it's not quote-unquote valuable, but the sentimentality is important. Yeah. So being able to talk with a customer and tell them accurately and as informed as possible because he came here on his day off, you have to value his time as well. This watch needs to be serviced. It's I mean, 750 euros, takes six to eight weeks. They have to take a look at it. It's an older watch, therefore it might be more. They might have to replace some parts that are not part of the surface. We'll get in touch with you, email, telephone. The contact is such a big part. Every aspect, we've had watches that are from like the 60s and the 50s and even a pocket watch from the 1890s. So yeah, the service is a big aspect of it. That's a lot of the work. About how many people come into the shop on an average week looking for service? Yeah, so these are these are numbers we actually track daily. Um, we track visitors, um, and then we also track customers. So this is kind of a give us idea what the Kundengewinnungsquote is. So this is a, um, see how many of the actual people who walked by become customers. Uh, on average, a day can be like 40 people who just kind of mull by, or it can be on a slow day, 20 people. So about 40 people come into the shop on a given day. Yeah. And of those 40 people who come in, about how many of them are seeking service on the watch? A lot of times it's a lot of service questions. Even um, our, our jewelers, our other concessions that have cooperations, they sell Omega watches, they'll come to us with questions. Whether they'll send their, their customers to us because they don't do it themselves. A lot of the customers that come in really want a new bracelet, want a new um, a glass for their watch. They just want it to look a little bit nicer, polished a little bit, buffed a little bit. I'd say a good good portion. The actual sale itself is less common than the service because I think that is an important aspect. I mean, like I said, um, the service aspect is so integral to who we are. You buy these timepieces for a lifetime. Therefore, you're going to see our faces quite a lot. That's why we want to make sure it's the best possible direction that you have, even if it's for a brief 10 minutes. So if I was to be rough with the numbers, I'd say probably... Yeah, 25% uh, of the customers who come in are for service. Maybe another 50% are just kind of walking through, kind of trying to kill some time before their flight, <laughs> um, <laughs> going through the Kadevi on the Kudam. And then like the last 25 are serious about a purchase. 
whether it's just trying to narrow down of the three watches, which one is the right one. They need to try that one on that they've been looking at for kind of months now. They never actually tried it on. Yeah, so I'd say about 10, 20 people every couple of days were sending in their watches to service. Otherwise, we do a lot there. I want to talk about that group that you just alluded to. Like, you have this line of watches and you have to try to find the right watch for the right person. How do you help people to find the right watch for them? What does that conversation sound like? You just want to build a rapport. You just say hi to someone. How you doing? I see either that you have that that watch on you that we can connect about. Oh, that's that's gorgeous, that blanc pain. Or I see your suitcase with you. I know that you're just a tourist. You're kind of walking through. You might have just come from your flight. So it's about building rapport. From that point, kind of just throwing probing questions at someone. Which ones do you like? And whether they're uh, the Speedmaster, Seamaster, do you like a watch that's uh, a little bit more sporty? Do you like a watch that's a little more fashionable? Do you like a watch that's a little bit more dress, very kind of understated? And you're trying to start figuring out who they are as a person. So this categorizing people, generalizing people, uh, in sales, it's important. In normal life, I'd say it's the less so the case. I Did mean, you, maybe. Yeah. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Uh, people are complex. Uh, that's my that's my personal credo. And then from that point, you start offering different ones. So you have a joker. So one that's just ridiculous. I don't like that watch. Why don't you like that watch? Uh, it's a little too large, too colorful. Okay, you don't like it so colorful. You like a little bit more black blue. Yeah, I like black blue. And then you offer a different and you start narrowing, narrowing. So you're maybe getting to two or three watches at that point. Okay. At that point, you're talking about the pros and cons, just informing someone as best as possible, figuring out what they like. Have they ever bought in a watch before? Yeah. Is this their first mechanical watch? Because that's that's also a big conversation is the mechanical watches is different from a quartz watch that you've been wearing your whole life. Quartz watch is extremely accurate. If you want nothing to do with watches and it's just for utility, a quartz watch every day, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you, you buy a mechanical. It's more complex. There's more to it. But a mechanical has this this warmth to it, this fire inside of it. When you see the glass case on the back of your watch, you see a little heart that's just beating and going. I'm watching this right now. I've never actually seen this before. Yeah, it's a glass case back. So that's so that you can see inside the actual movement. Can I put that in my paw? Please. It's kind of gorgeous. Right? Yeah. It's gorgeous in its simplicity. This is a beautiful watch. Thank you. I should give it back to you. <laughs> I'm the pocket this thing. <laughs> so if I was to give an example, so you talk to me as a customer and I would say, oh, these are the type of things I want to watch that's waterproof. I want a black dial. I want a metal bracelet. I'd say, okay, this watch has a history to it. It's very simplistic, but all the little aspects when you appreciate them really appeal to you. Yeah. Um, it's not in your face. It's not a gold watch. Some people want gold watches. It's really not the majority of our sales. <laughs> yeah. Is it important for you to get the watch on someone's wrist? Absolutely. It's it's important for people to try it, the tactile sense. I think most people have seen watches, whether it's on Instagram, Facebook, wherever, social media, just looking through websites. You have a different impression. And there's a lot of people who go, this is the watch I wanted. They try it on. I hate it. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like the way it feels. It's too big. It's too bulky. It's too small. So it's getting the watch on the person, them looking in the mirror, and also just kind of being told about it. They can imagine themselves. That's why the mirrors are so important. They can see themselves with it. A lot of people want to be seen with certain brands. Yeah, yeah. But in the end, 
I'm not selling to the, an audience who's going to look at your watch. That just helps to support my argument is that it looks good on you. Yeah. But in the end, it's for you. You're buying it. Let's say someone walks in and they want a coaxial master, one of these numbered edition. Oh, using the words. Extraordinary yeah. watch. It's beautiful. Can you get that watch? Is that in your purview to be able to procure this limited edition watch? Limited edition watches are prioritized through boutiques because we are the Omega producer. That means that if it's a watch coming from anywhere in the world, we can we can get it for the most part. That being said, there's some watches that are just not being produced anymore. They were limited once. They were produced in 2019. It just doesn't exist anymore. I can't get my hands on it and because we only sell new watches. We don't sell used watches because for us, we can always guarantee the quality and the standard. And it's also partially a warranty and uh, insurance aspect is that we can say that watch from the time it's left us, our hands to you, no one touched it. That's a brand new watch. It's not a single fingerprint, not a single scratch. You're getting your money's worth. Yeah, yeah. So a fellow like me walks into the shop and I'm just a dreamer. And on some level, you know it. You highly suspect it. You don't want to put me in a box. You realize, as you said, that people are complex and you don't want to judge a book by its cover. But after 15 or 20 minutes with me, you deduce with reason that I'm not going to be a buyer anytime soon. How do you approach that sure. at the boutique? There's different approaches and it's kind of quite circumstantial and situational. If I notice it's Christmas time, which is my favorite time because I feel like I'm in hustle culture, uh -huh. just slinging watches left and right. Um, I think the customer understands when I politely offer materials. I give them my card. I say, hey, these are the watches that we were looking at. Uh, you can take a look at our website for more information. My phone number is right there. Here's my name. I'm here these days, these days. Here's a magazine, something to look at. Give it some time. You're just trying to make first impressions right now. Kind of summarize the interaction that we had. And that point, it's natural. I think people are like, okay, it's the end of the conversation. Um, it's really just kind of moving at that person's pace, but also letting them understand that you're not quite there yet. You're not quite ready to make a decision. You've already looked at all the pieces you want to look at. I've given you a lot of information. You have my contact details. We can talk anytime. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. So, okay. That's a kind way to go about it. I appreciate that. It's generous of you. You've said a couple times that so much of your work is built up in repeated connections and relationships. At some point you said friendships. I'd love to hear you talk more about that because it seems to me like so much of your work is wrapped up in building relationships with clients. How do you do that and what do you love about it? Of course, if you don't have a relationship or a connection with someone, like a spark, like romance, yeah. it'll never really go anywhere. But it's really quite unique experience. I meet new people every day. I meet hundreds of new people, especially in December. It's unique that I have friendships and long-term relationships with, with some customers. And it really just comes back down to commonalities. I have some guys who are from Italy, and so I'll chat with him. I kind of did him a solid for, for a sale, a watch that was very, very demanded. And I got him on the short list. 
and I loved his enthusiasm. This guy who I got him on the short list, he, he was always so passionate. He came by the boutique all the time. He wasn't necessarily buying anything. He was just like, we were chatting like little like school kids. Yeah. It, it was like talking with like another like 14 year old. <laughs> Have you seen the new thing? Um, or another customer who just has like a breadth of world experience, a diplomat. Don't want to get too, too specific about the guy, but this is someone who I feel very comfortable with. We have normal conversations. We'll talk about watches, but at the same time, we, we talk about our families and our backgrounds and we're just seeing each other as people at that point. People have this respect for each other and I feel like it's such a rare and fleeting aspect, and especially nowadays when there's some new wealth that treats people as kind of robots to be able to give things to them quickly. They don't really treat you with necessarily respect. It's culturally different, generationally different. And so be able to experience that with someone, of course, I'm going to be wanting to keep them more in my life. Yeah. Are there a lot of like watch nerds that show up in the shop just to talk shop? 100%. (laughs) So Omega has, I think, a disproportionate amount of watch nerds compared to other brands. Okay. So you'll have people who come in who know the exact frequency of a watch uh, the exact uh, movement number. They know more than you quite clearly about a specific model or whatever. Now, are they coming in to buy anything or they just want to talk because they just love to talk about it and you're the type of person with whom they can talk? Both. Yeah, so yeah. both sometimes will, someone will talk about a watch that they want and it's it's really quite difficult for them to get it unless they have a history with us. But some people are just, ah, yeah, that watch I bought 20 years ago, you know this? And then they start talking, rattling off the details. It's kind of making them feel secure in their decision that they made that long ago. And that we just have like a nice kind of rapport. Yeah. Now, we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I have noticed that there's a certain gendered language that you've been deploying. And it is my experience with limited information that a lot of the watch nerds are dudes. Mm. Can you give me a sense of about what percent of the serious buyers who come into the shop probably identify as men? It's a total sausage fest, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, But that's just generally industry-wide. So those are the type of people who spend money on watches. But the same is if you compare other boutiques like Prada or Gucci, uh, what have you, the the majority of customers are women. That being said, we do, I'd say, probably a 90 to 10% ratio, roughly. Okay. The vast majority are men. And your colleagues, you had mentioned that there is a female colleague. Is it Hmm. her and... The rest of the sausages or is it more blended than that oh there's there's a couple of women okay. um so there's uh, two female colleagues currently there used to be a boutique manager who was female uh, otherwise um, it's a lot of guys so um younger guys who kind of have the, that passion that kind of energy behind it of course everyone brings something different and that's kind of going into an aspect about the team building that's really important is you can kind of chameleon to different people. So the colleague who's on the older end, she's late 40s, uh, she is Chinese. So she's able to speak Chinese with a lot of customers. We do have a lot of Chinese customers and they don't speak English or they speak half English. So if she's not there, we're trying to figure out what, what they want, what they want to look at, a lot of pointing. Otherwise, everyone on the team speaks German and English, English to an extent, but really quite fluent, impressive actually or they speak another language like French or Russian or something like that, just because those are important languages. And as an Italian, I think you've, you can know that French and Italian, they like to speak their own language. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Gotcha. So in dealing with this diverse clientele, you 
are dealing with people who all have their own culture of pricing and negotiation. And when push comes to shove, Jonathan, you got to sell washes, mm. you got to move merch, or that's about it for you. So first of all, our price is negotiable. And secondly, if they are, uh, how do you negotiate? What's your approach to all that? So Omega is very unhappy about price negotiations. There is a wiggle room to work with prices, but generally speaking, these, these large number figures of 10%, 20% just don't exist. They, they don't exist anymore, at least directly from boutiques. And these are places where you can get limited and special edition watches. We have a different price politic. So the idea being that we explain these are brand new watches straight from the manufacturer. It's not been stored for, you know, 20 odd years or just sitting and it's not the last season's collection. We either have new stuff or old stuff, but it's always brand new. Another aspect is, of course, we're the manufacturer. So there's a lot to the company besides just producing watches. There's marketing, there's there's sponsorships, there's the Olympics. It's difficult, but at the same time, explain customer service, warranty, so that you can go anywhere in the world with our watches. And the same time, we're also extremely informed people. And I think this is another aspect that's not talked about enough. We spend years and years of our lives. There's watchmakers who spend years and years of lives getting that training to make that watch. We spend a lot of our own personal time to be able to talk about that. You're not paying just for the watch. You're also paying for expertise and experience and this entire Elipness, yeah, experience. So I appreciate all of that. You don't like to negotiate. Omega doesn't want you to negotiate. It's frowned upon, but it's possible. There's there's a certain wiggle room. Um, it really is situational. So it's based person to person. If you're coming in off the street, you want to buy this watch significantly cheaper, you know, have a nice day. We'll give you a lot of information. We really hope you choose us in the end, but I can't work with that number. Let's say that someone's coming in mm. from a culture where everything is a negotiation. We and they full, I know you do. <laughs> yeah. And so let's say you have a 10,000 euro watch mm. and they're intent on giving you 9,200. Mm. That's their offer. Yeah. They got cash in hand. Mm. You take it or you give them your card. It's funny, actually, specifically, you said cash. Cash is such an issue for us, uh, actually, for a lot of companies in Germany, because there's a Geldwäsche Gesetz, there's a money laundering law. As of um, 10,000 euros, you have to do a Schufa Antrag, and it's it's really a pain for everyone. Um, so 9,200. <laughs> 9,200, yeah. Do you take it? No. For us, it's more than just making the sale. It's also about having the Wertstabilität, so the value being stable. You compare with other brands. Of course, the big one comes to mind, Rolex. You see these brands either increase in value and they don't generally decrease. Really across the board, a lot of watch brands don't retain their value necessarily because there's industrial movements or there's other aspects where they really buy low, sell high. With with our watches, we're at that niveau. There's a lot of watches that really keep their value. There's some that don't because it's really the demand is not there. So we tell them the prices that you see on Chrono 24, these gray market prices, these dealers that get 20% or 10%, I'm sorry, we can't offer you that. I would even strike the sorry. I'm entirely honest about it. First of all, there's a uncertainty to buying watches through that channel. 
uh, you don't can't certify where it's coming from. The watches that have such the strongest discounts, 10, 20% are coming from far away. So Taiwan, China. So it comes there, it's all broken up, whatever. Of course, you have a warranty through the seller, but the guy lives in China, lives in Taiwan. You can't go to a store and talk to me. Yeah. Because if you went to me, I would say, okay, we can send for warranty. But in the end, like if you have to pay for it, we don't recognize the warranty. Cool. I think that's great. I think it's nice that you don't have to grapple with negotiations day in and day out. I would find that to be terribly stressful. And mm -hmm. even though people probably want to negotiate with you, knowing that you and your team don't have to do that and you're not going to cop to too many negotiations has got to be empowering. It just makes your day better. I can only imagine. That said, I have a question. How do you get paid, man? <laughs> um, I would actually jump back really quick, but the, like, the cherry on top is that we really want to make someone feel with giveaways and with experiences. They're invited to dinners, they're invited to special VIP events. It's really this full faceted way of our approach that we want not just the sale, but we want to keep you. And even if you haven't bought in a watch in a while, we have events where we invite people that we just like, you know, like we sold like one really good watch to him and it's been like, you know, a couple of years since he bought it because it's situational, whatever. We just like talking with the guy. We want to have dinner with the guy and we like being around him or her um, going to the compensation. Hold on. Now yeah. you got me interested in this yeah. about how many company gatherings mm. for clients are there in a given year? Well, we just had a, uh, a new opening where we offered champagne to different people coming in on every Saturday for the entire month of December. We had the launch of a new uh, collection and this was had to coincide with the different actors that were coming out and new, new collection that was coming. So we invited a bunch of people to dinner on the sixth floor. We have a uh, Valentine's Day, we had a James Bond event. These are all people that we wanna keep inviting. And so we obviously have our VVIPs, but there's so many people where we they bought one watch and we just, we just like being around them. And those are, those are my clients. I want to see them. I want to have good food with them. So we're talking probably once a month, there's something for your VIPs and your VVIPs. Yeah. Awesome. All right. How do you get compensated? Yeah. So there is, um, two aspects to the salary. Um, so there's a fixed income and there's a variable income. The fixed income, what I can say, what I'm contractually allowed to say is that I'm on the upper end of a salesman. It's the best a salesman can be paid in the retail because it's luxury, because it's a boutique, because of my experience. There's also the other aspect, the variable income. And that's a very interesting and unique company by company based plan. Some companies do individual provision or commission. And that leads to a lot of arguments in teams where people are always trying to like cut each other down with our team. And this comes back to the way our team is also organized, culturally, demographically, everything. Everyone offers something different. We have a goal. Once we reach that goal, we're compensated a flat amount. And then based off that, we can increase the amount. So if we say, for instance, 250000 is the goal for the month. We want to sell 250000 worth of product. It's a slow month. We get that point. We get commission. We get up to 300000 it's based off of that amount that is surplus that we get an additional commission. Um, Evenly divided between the team. So everyone has a certain win. So everyone profits from it. It's not just that guy, you know, Jonathan's selling, you know, all the watches, you know, like he's not letting anyone talk. Everyone gets compensated for it. So that's really helpful because there's a lot of things in the boutique that need to be done that are not necessarily customer directly related. 
Someone needs to, you know, adjust the bracelet. Someone needs to order a box for the watch. Someone needs to order more champagne. It's encouraged that these other additional tasks be done because these are boutique necessary things that need to be done. These tasks. Yeah. So you all share the win together. Exactly. That's kind of great, actually. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit more egalitarian. You're, you're, you're encouraged to work hard, but then everyone's profited from it. I love the idea that the people at Omega, they don't have to grapple with negotiations that much. There's not that cutthroat commissions culture mm. that divides the colleagues. That's awesome, man. You found a good place to work, huh? Yeah. yeah, it's a modern culture that I'm proud to be part of. Um, this this idea that they respect their employees. I can respect my coworkers, obviously. It's about moving forward in a modern, non-toxic environment. That's awesome, man. That said, and I know we don't want to talk about money all day, but I am curious. Sure. Even though the windfall from a big sale won't go straight into your pocket, you're going to share it with your team. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what it feels like to land a huge sale. It feels incredible. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, from the time I started to the time I went into paternal leave, I accrued altogether 1.3 million in swatch sales. Whoa. Personally. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Is it a lot? It's a lot. Okay. Yeah. It's roughly double like the normal employee earns. That's for, extraordinary. For sales, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Hustle culture. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, you were raised in a hustle culture and then mm. you moved to Germany in what, like 2007, 2010? When did you move uh, to Germany? 2009. 2009. Yeah. I'm in the pocket. Okay. Yeah. What do you think accounts for that success? Hustle culture? Sure. But it's kind of extraordinary what you accomplished. What's the best explanation for that remarkable success? I think, I think it's multifaceted, but... I think partially it is cultural. Um, I think it's also quite familial. My dad uh, is a business owner. But for me, I think in this case, I was extremely driven. And it's it's this drive that's like this this wind pushing at your back. that You just know you cannot stop. You cannot fail. I feel like in, in this point, right before my paternal leave, I wanted to make sure I worked hard because the company rewarded me quite fairly. And I felt like I owed it to them because it is not just a singular approach. I mean, you're, I'm a part of a larger organization. Everyone works hard. It's the type of company you want to work at, that everyone works at it, the top tier of the profession. I don't want to work with slackers. Yeah. So as you said, you're on paternity leave for a while now, which is why I was able to corner you <laughs> on this microphone. And as someone who deals with watches as you do, and as a new father feeling time in a totally different way, right? I think that you think about time a lot. You think that's right? 100%. Okay. <laughs> I wonder what you know about time that mere victims of time like me might not know or might not be mindful of. Yeah. In short, what are your thoughts about time? I think time, it's kind of an abstract truth. Time is the measuring of our days going by, you know, 365 days a year. All of this has really just been an evolution of the entire field of horology. And I, with my social uh, studies kind of background, you know, I studied sociology and anthropology in school, just the, the struggle to control time, because time is the ultimate equalizer. 
uh, you look at the history of time. So you go from the sundial, the high priests and the kings knew about it. And this was to control masses of people. You think about the Sumerian civilizations or the Aztec civilizations, the people that were in charge controlled time. They controlled events and they were able to control the people in effect. Fast forward to the point you go through the feudal age, you get to finally industrialization is the really next big step. Every royal is able to have a vandua, uh, a clock that can display time. Of course, it's extremely ornate. You have gold painting on it, which kind of made them crazy because the gold painting was done <laughs> through mercury at the time. Hey, yeah. um, but it became more accessible, even if it was to an upper class. And then I would say fast forward to the point of 1914, the early 1900s, where every man could carry a pocket watch. That point, we got to the point where we were having second hands. Yeah, every person became the dominator of their own schedule. You no longer relied on the sunset and sunrise and the, the movement of the sun in the sky. You could actually see what time it is. You needed an hour to do these things. You could be the agent of your own destiny. Okay, I'm, I'm broad strokes here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even you go to the courts movement. This is the most important part of our history is that every single person can buy a cheap watch for five euros from Swatch or whatever brand they want, even no name brand everyone has it. So now it's democratized time. It's no longer just controlled by powers. Everyone is able to use it, not as a weapon, but as a tool. Yeah. You even have a digital watch in your hand. That's the perfect example. It's a utility watch. I have a different watch for different reasons. And the watch becomes a part of your life. Whether you look at your phone, of course, it's a computer. The watch is a reminder that you are the, like I said, agent of your own destiny. You control your own time. This control over time is extremely empowering. Thank you so much for that. I knew it. I knew you thought a lot about <laughs> time. And I'm so glad that you shared some of your thoughts. And of course, I love that you brought it into a, an historical context. <laughs> Make my heart go pitter-patter. <laughs> I really wonder what you wish more people knew about luxury watches, even if they might not ever be in the financial position to afford one? I mean, I definitely think the understanding of time is a big aspect, but really seeing that the watch, the timepiece itself is a piece of moving art. So the same way that you appreciate a piece of art in a museum, it's the same way you should view a timepiece. The great thing about it, of course, is now that everyone has the ability to buy it, not everyone can buy a Picasso, but you have the potential of having a piece of art on your wrist. And it's a reminder of our entire movement from the dawn of time when we were just apes to now. These pieces are an incredible investment of time and energy. So, of course, excluding my experience and the experience of the watchmaker to get decades and decades of experience to create this, watchmakers are leaving the industry. There's not enough watchmakers. It's, it's extremely exquisite art. There's not enough people doing it. And so when you see someone who's handcrafted this piece, put it together, just appreciating this commitment to precision. And I think precision is the right word. Yeah. Well, I appreciate how precise you've been in your responses. I've learned so much from you today and that should be enough, but I always ask for more. <laughs> I hope you could help me to drive this train in the station. First, I'm hoping you might be able to share with me Two stories. First, a story of a professional failure, and then appropriately so, a story of a professional triumph. The failure? I'm not sure if it would be a failure, but 
I would maybe see it as a misstep and that'd be maybe educationally. My appreciation for university has definitely increased as I've gone into my career. My kind of misstep would be that I feel maybe I could have taken a little bit more time after high school. I think a lot of people are kind of encouraged quite intensely to go straight to university and they view any other path as less than. I feel like it was a misstep to go straight to university and not really appreciate it at the time. I think I was too young. I think I was too immature. That being said, if it wasn't for that time period, I wouldn't be where I am today. Right. But I feel it was really quite critical to kind of get out of that mindset. I was at the University of Edinburgh, one of like the best universities in all of Europe, arguably the world. And I have a new appreciation for the type of people who go there with vigor, with seriousness. I think my misstep in, in this whole situation, my, my life so far has definitely been that I, I was kind of presented this idea that the trades were dirty work and I've entirely changed my opinion on that. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so splendid that you found something that you, you really love. And I hope you don't regret your time in Edinburgh. Doesn't sound like you do. No, not at all. Not no, at no, all. It was right? great. Yeah. I'm, I'm the impression it's nothing is ever a failure. It's just an opportunity. Yeah, I'll take that. Do you believe there's such thing as a success? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's yeah, hear so one. My, my, I'd say my big success was going from being in a mall uh, store for Christ, working at Tegel, and just having great recommendations, having great grades, having a great rapport. All of the upper management knew my name, and being part of the team that opened up the new Christ store itself, not in a mall, on a street on Kudam. I was part of the team that did it. They didn't even want to have an Atsubi there. And they convinced them that I was great and I worked hard. That was probably the biggest success where I feel like I really earned that because uh, there was really no compensation at the time. Apprenticeship or paid like garbage. So yeah, yeah, yeah. just having that kind of made up for a lot of it. Nice. Well, it brings me tremendous joy to know that I'm not the only one that sees you as a talented compassionate, hardworking guy. You're a bona fide hustler. They saw it in <laughs> you. They saw your work ethic and they, they plucked you from obscurity, the obscurity of Alt-Tagel <laughs> and brought you to the Kudam. That's awesome, man. That's a total triumph. I love it. I have one more ask before we roll. I'm wondering if there's some type of artifact it could be anything, a, a book, a song, a poem, a film, a monument in Berlin, anything that somehow exemplifies or otherwise embodies what you do for a living. Yeah, it's hard. Um, <laughs> struggling with that one. I'd say maybe, I'd say really Mary Beard. Uh, the historian. Sp yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big nerd for the SPQR, uh, History of Ancient Rome. Great book. Totally recommend it. Yeah, it really just kind of shapes the way I kind of see things. Um, the fact it's a very multilateral approach to the history of humanity, you feel like you're really a part of it. And I feel like I see my place in it. I think my fascination with this book really situates me in time. I feel quite settled in it. I feel like I'm a part of it. It's living and it's really quite a beautiful uh, fleeting thing. I mean, time is by nature fleeting. Yeah. Well... 
if you'll pardon my love of the poetry of it all, since you and I first connected in a history classroom, it brings me tremendous joy to wrap up this conversation with a shout out to Mary Beard <laughs> and uh, our mutual love of history. Jonathan Trezolo, it has been a pleasure to have you on For a Living. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, friends, that was my conversation with Jonathan Trezolo. Like I said, thoroughly enjoyable fella. If you enjoyed this conversation and you want to do your part to keep these conversations going, do me a favor. Take a second. Think about your favorite episode of the podcast. Maybe you just like the guest. Maybe the work intrigued you or mystified you. Maybe the conversation just, I don't know, just somehow left a mark on you. Whatever the case might be, here's what I want you to do. Think about a person in your life who probably shares your interest. Then copy the link of that episode and send that episode to that person. Just asking you to share. If you care, share. Sharing is caring. Oi, listen to me. Sharing is caring. All right. Hey, did I already mention the Patreon thing? Patreon.com slash for a living. If you like the podcast, head over there, see what's up. I don't know what's up anymore. I loved that conversation with Jonathan. Not sure who I'm talking to in a couple of weeks. I know that I'll be back in a couple of weeks. I got a couple ideas. Been thinking about reaching out to a couple of people. Kind of falling behind on the whole for a living thing. Still love it. Still love it. Just having a hard time keeping up. All right, y'all. Hope you are keeping up with all your stuff. I wish you health. I wish you wellness. Please take care. Funky times. Funky times. Please take care. And I'll see you in two weeks' time with a mystery guest, evidently. 